This is a Dauntless Media Collective podcast. Visit dauntless.fm for more content. So they um, drafted up their marriage and family statement, which basically listed every sort of lifestyle, you know, the quotes, that is not being a cisgender heterosexual person in a heterosexual marriage. They listed out, you know, bisexuality and... Uh, and transgender and everything they could possibly think of that was outside. And they, they said this, um, these lifestyles are repugnant to God and the principles of the university. And if you are going to work here, you have to agree to that. And uh, that's when I'm faced with how much of an ally am I. Hi, I'm Nate. I'm Gail. And this is Full Mutuality. Um, our guest this evening is uh, Cynthia Vaca Davis, who is a um, an English professor um, at Christopher Newport University. Did I did I get the university yep, name name it. correct? Okay, yep. cool. Um, yep. In Newport News, Virginia, and she is also the author of the book intersection which is kind of going to be the the basis for our conversation uh this evening but uh Cynthia first of all welcome to uh to the podcast I'm so glad you uh you decided to come join us Thank you so much for having me it's definitely a pleasure I'd love to do some warm up questions just for fun just some icebreakers Okay stuff. okay all is right that okay? <laughs> I, I thought it would be fun to do some icebreaker questions just to start off. I mean, you're a professor Yay. and uh, we're going to probably get a little academic. No, maybe not too academic, but we're going to be talking about a book. But I figured, you know, to start off people are getting to know you, fun stuff, really not too serious. So here we go. Um, yeah. So people can get to know you. Phone call or text or text message? Which do you prefer? We're going to do some this or oh, that. Oh, text message. few questions. Text, text message for sure. Every oh, time. Woman after my own heart. <laughs> Yep. Yeah, I actually get um, like phone anxiety. Book or, or movie? <laughs> oh, book. Yes. Every time. Every oh, time. okay. Yep. Yep. I have a little backpack mm. that I was wearing on a trip The last author week picks the book over says, the movies. Yeah. I mean, really, right? On my backpack that I was wearing was a trip last week. It said the book was better. That was, And yeah, always. <laughs> always the book. All right. Android or iPhone? iPhone. 100% iPhone. <laughs> iPhone. iPhone, for sure. <laughs> Coffee or tea? Coffee, right here in my mug. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> yep, that's Nate and me. Yeah. All right, next one is um, wine or beer? Oh, wine, 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 wine. <laughs> Definitely wine. <laughs> <laughs> I usually cool. default to wine, but when I'm with Nate, probably beer because that's his his thing. Um, test the yeah, waters or dive in the you deep know? end. Oh no, um, mostly diving right in. <laughs> nice, mm. mostly. <laughs> All right, right lane or left lane? <sighs> right lane, right lane. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um. Socks in bed or not? Oh, no, never. No. Never? Oh, <laughs> you're hot. on team Nate never. on that one? <laughs> never. Yeah. No, I can't. I cannot. <laughs> I'm, the weirdo. I'm the weirdo who needs her socks to stay warm at night. 
If for some if for some reason I get into bed and I have the socks on, I just immediately just kick them off, and then they're just awkwardly kick rolling right around at the bottom of the bed. Right <laughs> <laughs> All right, okay. I don't know if this one ties into the last one or not, but winter or summer? Oh, summer, summer. I don't like winter. No. <laughs> oh, we're the same. No. <laughs> no same summer. <laughs> totally. All right. Cool. Um. Comedy or horror? Oh, comedy. I love to laugh and I don't like to be scared. Me too. Uh. <laughs> We're like answering, except for the socks. <laughs> We've been very similar on this. Socks and, and, and I'm an Android, but, but apart from that, a lot of this is just lining up. Um, okay. Watching sports or playing sports? Oh, watching sports. I, I make too many mistakes when I'm playing them. I'm not athletic. <laughs> I'm with you. I, I prefer to watch. Totally. Um, yeah. Okay, hang on. I have two more. Cat or dog person? Oh, I have both. So, like, I hope they're not listening. <laughs> <laughs> I think dog. I think dog. Yeah. Yeah. Nate is a huge doggy person. <laughs> Gonna have yeah. to go yes. with dog. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yes, last I like last that. question. <laughs> I love big- my kitties, but... Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm the cat person of the two of us. Okay, last question. Big party or a small gathering? Ooh, small gathering. But it's got to be quality. It's got to have good people, good food, good wine, um, but not too big. Love it. Love it. Yeah. Totally. All right. So those. that's it. You made it. You you uh, you passed Yay! our, uh, our icebreaker round of getting to cool. know you. You win. Yay! <laughs> I don't know what you win, but you win. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> so, yeah, and we're we're all on team. We've gone through some church stuff, and we've we've come out some yeah. some of it. Um, we've been processing things on our podcast. We talk a lot about the evangelical stuff, um, but we also like to talk about being on the margins and what that looks like, and help expand people's thoughts. But we thought, you know, maybe we'll start in with just what's your background. You know, what were you a yeah. part of a faith community growing up? What did that look like? What's your where did you hail from? And then like. Uh, how have you evolved or how has that changed through the years when it comes to that? Yeah. That stuff? Yeah. I mean, my early evangelical experience, because that's what it was. I was mostly in evangelical churches and it was like a cornucopia of of churches. And I, I grew up, uh, I was born into a family who was not churched and just a regular um, secular family. And then when I was eight, my dad, um, came to faith through watching Billy Graham on TV. And my dad is one of these all in guys. Hmm. And when he um, heard the Billy Graham crusade and decided this was what he wanted to do, because he was kind of on a spiritual journey of his own, he decided he was going to try all the churches. He didn't really know what he was doing. So he starts going to church on Sundays and I decide, you know, why not? I'll go with them. I'll see what this is about. I just kind of wanted to get out of the house, I guess. And we went to Methodist churches and Presbyterian churches and Bible churches and Bible Baptist churches and charismatic churches. I mean, like the whole, the whole cornucopia. So oh, wow. in the beginning, yeah. So that was really fascinating because I got to see that what happened in one church was really different from what happened in the other church. And then that might be even different, you know, that radically from an, a, in the next church we went to, but there were patterns that right. I started to pick up, right? Um, where they're different, but they're the same. Mm. 
So, yeah. So and the I Bible to... clearly says changed from church to church, but there was some yes. things that kind of crossed through all of them. Mm-hmm. That was well said. Exactly. Because mm-hmm. the Bible yeah. was clear on so many things. So many things. Like at one church, the Bible's clear that you don't dance or you don't play cards and you never drink. But then another church, you know, some of that was okay again, Mm -hmm. but there was another list of things that you don't do. (laughs) So the rules changed a lot, even though the Bible was clear. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's sort of part and parcel of the evangelical experience. And I guess, uh, you know, for people who have like you and, and like myself, I, I also kind of heard a little bit of my own story in that in my upbringing after spending like nearly 20 years at one church, started doing the church hopping thing for a few years after that. And it's incredible how similar they all are in certain things, but how mm-hmm. they suddenly like each one has a militant stance about something that the other church doesn't necessarily have a militant stance or has the opposite militant stance on. Yes. Um, I did yes, find that to be exactly fascinating. Yes, that's exactly it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I say fascinating I like, a little bit tongue-in-cheek because um, it turned into something painful, really, in, in a lot of those environments from for a lot of people. Definitely. Definitely. It's it's just kind of like you, you make these observations as a kid and, and then as you get older and you start putting it all together and start kind of realizing what's happening, um, then it, it does become painful when you have that mature outlook, when you're looking back at, you know, that wasn't normal. So in your, in your journey, in your journey of faith and, and having this, you know, this very interesting experience of being able to see all the differences in churches and check them out and then notice similarities in them. Um, where were you at? Um, like, maybe tell us about the process uh, leading up to meeting Danny. Where were you at? Were you in an evangelical church at that point? Um, how'd you guys come across each other? Because we're going to be talking about your book and and it, it intersects yeah. your stories. Your The story's called Intersection and it's an intersection of your two stories and how that played out and how that affected you. Um, so how did that, where were you at when you met Danny and what did that look like? So I was at a church where for the first time I was starting to feel super comfortable um, where it was okay to have questions and not everybody believed the same things. And you could come to a Bible study and have people from totally opposite ends of an issue talking back and forth. And at first, you know, I'm kind of holding my breath wondering, you know, oh my goodness, you know, (laughs) who's going to get excommunicated, but it never worked out that way. Everybody was just having really good dialogue. There was a lot of diversity and I'm feeling for the first time, like maybe this is truly Christianity working the way it was always meant to work. So I was all in and I was invested at this church and Danny was, um, another church member and at the at the time when I met Danny, I was better friends with his partner at the time, um, female partner. And Danny was, um, as far as I knew, um, he was presenting as a female. So I thought that they were a lesbian couple. And I thought, oh, this is so cool also because my church apparently has lesbian and, and gay people and, and nobody seems to be upset about that too. So this this is probably a pretty good place. And hmm. And that's kind of how it started, where this is where this is the environment that I met Danny in. 
Okay. And then so, um, your, yeah. so your relationship then, um, was that, uh, so you met, you met Danny, um, at this church and they were fellow members. Did you have any kind of, um, like, was there, were you, um, you weren't a youth leader or anything at that church, right? Where you met Danny? No, no, Danny was actually the youth leader at this church. Oh, okay, And okay. I think that about the time when we were starting to become friends, because I have a background in youth ministry, I had been a youth leader at a different church. And then as Danny and I started to become friends, Danny and his partner were leading the youth group. So they would sometimes ask for help. Um, they were doing something, you know, bigger with the youth group and needed an extra pair of hands and they would ask me. So I love to do that because I love youth ministry and that's, you know, something I had a background in. And that was one of the ways we started to connect as friends. I see. Okay. So maybe you could share, um, I mean, I know Danny has given you permission to share their story. Clearly you've written a book about their story too, and we'll get into that yeah. in a bit, but um, tying into um, where, where, I mean, before you decided that you would start picking up their story and talking about uh, his story, how did, because uh, you mentioned that Danny was female presenting, how did that go down in your relationship um, with them coming to their own recognition and what did that look like? Yeah, I had mentioned, and Danny goes by he, him pronouns, and he's fully living as a male now, but at this, in the beginning, um, he wasn't. So, um, and as I had mentioned, I was better friends with his partner at the time, and things started... Um, it was very clear to me that there was something going on that was not quite right with Danny. Um, he just was seemed very depressed and his partner was depressed. And um, a lot of friends were beginning to worry about what might be going on. And you know, we didn't know if there were maybe some physical problems because he had had a couple of surgeries, but it also seemed that there was um, something else that just wasn't going well leading up to um, the conversation that, um, one day, um, I got a text and, um, it was a mutual friend and said, you know, can you meet us over here at this Panera? Because Danny is, Danny wants to share something. And so I, I came to the Panera, my husband was with me and Danny was there. And that was Danny's kind of very first putting a toe in the waters and testing out, um, telling his story for the first time and said, basically, um, so I'm not, um, I'm not Danny with an I, I am Danny with a Y as in, I'm not female. I'm, I'm male. And, um, explained to me, uh, cause I had not heard the word intersex up until that point. This was 2014. Um, I did not know the word intersex okay. and um, until this conversation and Danny said, yeah, I am intersex. And, and if you've ever heard the word hermaphrodite, which I had, so that's an archaic word and we don't use it anymore, but that right. that's what I'm trying to communicate. And then I said, oh yeah, I have heard that word before. And, and he kind of just went through very carefully and cautiously, like he was trying out this script of how he was going to go forward and tell other people. And the reason why he chose my husband and I was kind of almost a shot in the dark because we knew each other, but not super well at this point, but he knew we were safe people. We had a reputation of being safe people who uh, we had friends in the LGBTQ community. We were known for being safe people to talk to. So 
this mutual friend said, why don't you, you know, try out your story? And, and that's kind of how we, how our friendship, our actual friendship began that night when he told a story. Hmm. And now, um, as uh, you, you sort of document his story, um, in your book now to kind of clarify a little bit for, for anyone listening, um, your book is sort of presented as, um, a narrative nonfiction, mm-hmm. um, in, in kind of a dramatic fashion written in the first person from both your perspective and Danny's perspective. Um, and I find that, I find it fascinating. And I also find it incredibly arresting. Um, what was that like for you to, especially since, um, one thing that I, I thought was really interesting was to paint the picture of, um, Danny's childhood and his, um, um, late elementary and early middle school years as well and and tracing his story even going back that far um what was that like for you writing almost in his voice and and telling his story through the eyes of a, a child basically yeah it wasn't something that evolved over time i didn't start out with the idea that i was going to write it in first person i didn't even start out with the idea that i was even going to write his story because that was a scary thought for me um and and it is it, it can be problematic right for an ally to tell someone else's story and so i was really sensitive about that and kind of um almost hesitant to approach the story but um was kind of almost prodded into it um, one night where um, it was into a couple of weeks into Danny's um, um, transition where he was starting to tell people um, who he was and how he was going to go forward in his life. And um, not to give too much away from the book, but it was at a pivotal moment and um, a bunch of us were in the living room and someone said, there is no, no one would ever believe a story like this. This is just not the kind of story that anyone could possibly believe. It would, it would just not be believable. And then my husband kind of said, Oh, my wife could write this story. Cause he's always, you know, husbands. And I'm like, just, and <laughs> in truth, I was actually in my MFA program at the time. And, um, I was struggling a little bit because I was trying to be a humorist it was my, that was my goal. I was going to write humorous essays. And I ended up in um, a workshop with a professor who did not like humor at all. And everything was dark and morose and sad. And he um, didn't like anything humorous that I wrote. And he's like, you need a darker subject. And so I was, I was actually thinking about options of what am I going to do? And, um, and then I, so I smacked my husband. I said, I'm not writing Danny's story. And then Danny said, well, yeah, you should. You totally should write my story. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> and he said, um, it's an important, like, I feel like it's important for people to know. And I kind of really would like my story told. I'm not interested in writing it myself. I don't like to write. But if you want to ask me questions and, and kind of write about this, I, I'd be open to that. So that's kind of how it began. And it was just us getting together a couple nights a week and he would tell his, his stories from his life and I'm taking notes and I'm thinking, oh, maybe I'll write this in the third person or, or maybe I'm going to overlay it with some academic material. I didn't really know. I didn't have a vision for the book as it is now at that time, other than I'm collecting his story and I'm going to carry his story. Um, and 
it wasn't too long into that process that I started having some events in my life that, um, you know, that intersection that Gail was talking about earlier, that's, that's when it became our story. And it was really actually second to last draft before I started pitching it, where I wrote Danny in first person because an editor said, you really need to do this in first person. (laughs) No, I can't. No, I can't. But she said, think of it as ghostwriting. It's like you're ghostwriting his story. And then that kind of clicked with me. And I felt a little better about it because Danny is like, I don't care. First person, third person, just tell the story. (laughs) Has he given you some feedback afterwards? Like now that, you know, you've written it out and he's had a chance to read it. What was that like when, you know, he was able to read through it and give you his take? How did you, what, what was that? It was that like it was developing over a long period of time because I was so, you know, I'm carrying the story and it's a huge responsibility and I want it to be right. And I want it to be I want it to really, truly be his story. So I would give him pages or I'd ask him about things. And one reason why it was a long process is there would be seasons where he couldn't really deeply invest in it because he said, he said, you're going to. um he said, I mean, this is a compliment, but you're writing this too well. <laughs> and, it, and, and what he meant was that it made him relive it. Um, and he said, those scenes are too real. And when I read them, I am going right back into those moments. And some days he'd say, yeah, I'm okay with it. It's, you know, I'm fine with it now. And there'd be other seasons where he'd say, I think I need, I need a break from, from reading it. He'd answer any questions and he want. he'd talk all the time. As far as like actually reading the pages, it was, it was kind of a roller coaster of some days were okay. And some days weren't okay for, for him to, to actually get mm. that deeply into the story again. That makes total yeah. sense. And it's probably not something people realize when you're deciding, Hey, I'm not just going to pick up my friend's story, take from my, the notes that they've written and talk. And what I've or the notes that I've taken listening to them, but just the idea of running it by through them and what that's like to have to relive listening to your own story. Um, yeah, that that makes sense. Yeah. Why it would have taken taken a long time just to to make it through that in a way that's that's comfortable for them and and um, yeah, just sensitive and thoughtful about they want their story out there, but he also you know needs to needs to go have to re, be in a headspace where he's willing to to listen. Uh, to hearing and reliving yeah. that, so it's it's an important story, and I'm, I, I, yeah, getting back to, I mean, um, how this story intersects with your story. I mean, initially you wanted to write a story uh, about what he had gone through because you had been led into his life and had seen some of this unfold um, as he came to realization and told you about it, um, and you know you're putting this together, thinking, okay, this is going to be about his story, and then events start to unfold where it's all of a sudden becoming uh, as an ally, it starts to become something a little bit different in terms of your story taking place in the right. middle of his story. And how did that tell us where you were at? What was going down? It was, um, I think it was just a week after the night when we were all together in my living room and, and he's like, yeah, write my story. And I'm thinking, okay, so this is kind of what I'm doing in my MFA program. It's, you know, it's an academic project. We'll see what goes, what happens with it. But at the same time, I had also said, because you know, that was his question, right? When we met at Panera, will you be on my my team, basically? Will you, um, I, I need some people around me that I can trust as I go through this because I might lose everything. I might lose my family. 
I might lose church. I might, I might not be able to work with the youth anymore. I might lose everything. And so that was part of it saying, yeah, sure. You know, this is, it's a no brainer for me that I'm going to support you. You came to me with this and it's, it's so serious. It's, it's truly life and death. And yes, I'm going to be there. So about a week after that, um, where I was in my life is I was circuiting three universities. I was in my little Chevy Spark and I had the university where I was getting my MFA and, and then I had um, Christopher Newport. I was an adjunct there. And then I was traveling um, across the state line down into North Carolina to this small little um, Bible school. And I was an adjunct there as well. And so my week was just a circuit. I'm going through two different bridge tunnels, crossing into North Carolina and back into Virginia, just a revolving uh, circuit of these three universities. And I'm thinking, you know, adjuncting is hard work. It's, it's like the, um, you're the itinerant workers of academia mm -hmm. and you don't have any job security. Um, you are teaching the same classes as other professors, but not getting paid nearly the same amount of money to do it. So I'm thinking maybe something will come of this. Maybe one of these schools is going to offer me something a little more stable. And lo and behold, um, as unlikely as that was at that point, because I don't even have my MFA. I had a master's, which was why I was teaching, but I didn't have my MFA, which was, you know, kind of what you're supposed to, to have. It's um, sort of like having a PhD and that's what most professors will have. And <laughs> one day the little Bible school says, um, I, we need to talk because we've just had a, an audit of some sort and we need to immediately hire a tenure track professor. Um, to oversee the English department. And we need to make this appointment pretty quickly. And at that point, I was the only even remotely qualified person on campus. So they were kind of right from the beginning looking at me to do that. Wow. And it was almost like a formality. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's it's mid-semester. Um, I don't have my MFA. And all of a sudden, I'm being offered a tenure track job, which is, it just never happens. That never, ever happens. So, um, that sounds good, but there's a big catch. <laughs> mm. Um, because the formality, it was kind of come on campus, talk to different people. We're going to get to know you a little better. There's paperwork. There's, um, you know, just meeting, meet and greet of the whole faculty. And then they said, well, we also have this new statement that we're making everybody sign. And it was basically, um, they called it a marriage and family mm. statement. Yeah. And red flags are going up all Ooh. over the place. <laughs> Ooh, we kind of, if you come from evangelicalism, oh, you're like, mm, I have a feeling I might have an idea. Why, what might be in uh, these pages? <laughs> yeah. I think I know what's coming. <laughs> oh, boy. And they had just recently drafted because they're in North Carolina and Virginia had just legalized um, gay marriage. It wasn't federal yet, but Virginia legalized it. So they're afraid, oh, what's coming down the pike to North Carolina? So we have to get ahead of it, right? Mm. So they um, drafted up their marriage and family statement, which basically listed every sort of um, lifestyle, you know, the quotes, um, 
that is not being a cisgender heterosexual person in a heterosexual marriage. They listed out, you know, bisexuality and, uh, and transgender and everything they could possibly think of that was outside. And they, they said this, um, these lifestyles are repugnant to God and the principles of the university. And if you are going to work here, you have to agree to that. Mm. And uh, that's that's when that's when I'm faced with how much of an ally am I, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. Like, that is such a <laughs> such an important point. I think we have a we have a friend who who's come on our podcast before, but in one of her podcasts, her name is Janice. She mentioned how. Uh, and she's just talking about the shootings in Buffalo, I think, that week um, against the black community mm-hmm. that were very targeted. And her comment was, you know, white people asking how can they be allies or what can they do to be a support? And she's kind of tired. I just kind of heard in her voice a resignation of like, oh, we've given mm. you all the book recommendations. And she goes, you know what? I have a better question. And she's like, what are you willing to give up to be an ally? That was what she left people with in terms of her answer to that question. And it stuck with me ever since she said it. That's something that I play over and over in my head, you know, in terms of how can I support you is an easier question. Uh, The harder one is what am I willing to give up in order to support you? And in your case, that was, I mean, what came with that job for you or what was, what was the benefit, like health insurance probably and like what job security and what, uh, Oh yeah. It was going to like change my life. Um, I had a, a child that was going to the school, so I wouldn't have had to pay tuition um, <laughs> right there, right? And then, you know, immediately the, my income was going to just be way more than what I was making as an adjunct. And I was all, when you have tenure, you have that job. That's your job until you die, unless mm-hmm. you do something really, really stupid. Yeah. So it would, it was, it was going to be a big life upgrade. <laughs> But you're right, though. That's such yeah. an until important... you read the statement. Until I until I read the statement, and then that's yeah, that's when things derailed. But yeah. yeah, being an ally costs something, which was not something I realized up to that point. Because it's easy to say, "Oh yeah, I have gay friends and I love them," but I never really had to pay a cost associated with that. Yeah, I found that that chapter where you describe, and I won't spoil anything because it it is it's quite a chapter um, describing the the interaction that you had in that boardroom um, yeah. with, I guess it was the the, the school president and 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 a, a yeah. few other um, people, professors and whatnot, and it was so reminiscent of. Um, I attended a, a fundamentalist university. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Bob Jones University in, in Greenville, yeah. South Carolina. Yep. Um, so that's my alma mater and. The the characters in that boardroom reminded me so much <laughs> of people that I've had to to interact with <laughs> when I was at school, and it, and it's it's funny um, going from that environment to where I am now. I work for a a public university um, here in New Jersey, and it's night and day from yes. the uh, the conservative Christian university environment or or higher education and then finding myself in a state school a state university it's such a stark 
stark difference. Um, and I found that, that particular chapter. So for, for anyone who's listening, um, I almost would just from my own perspective, anybody who has kind of been through the, the evangelical higher education world, um, just the description of, of that alone is worth kind of the, the price of admission. Cause it, it was, it was something else. It brought up all sorts of thoughts and feelings in me. And, mm-hmm. and I like was conjuring up, I mean, I was envisioning, uh, the admin building on Wade Hampton Boulevard in, I know it's not, but it, you know, in my mind, this is what I was imagining. Um, Bob Jones University's ad- administration yeah. building. So. Yeah, you're superimposing your experience, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's so interesting that you recognize those characters, mm-hmm. even though you don't know the people. You know those characters, which goes back to what we were saying earlier: how mm-hmm. there's patterns. Oh, absolutely. In the evangelical communities, whether they're school communities or church communities, even though the issues may change the patterns are the same. Yeah. I, I, I want to go back to something that you mentioned um, when you were having your conversation with, with Danny and as he was sort of um, wrestling with sharing his story and finally kind of, mm-hmm. um, I guess, uh, narratively coming out. Um, right. You, you made the comment that he, he said he had this fear that he might not be able to work with the youth anymore at, yeah. at oh, the, the church. This is what I was curious about. How uh, but, did the church yeah. handle this? Yeah, because <laughs> you had mentioned prior to that that it appeared that the church was LGBTQ Supportive. friendly given the fact that you were seeing yeah. at the time Danny being um, female presenting with a female partner. Um, in your mind, I'm, I'm assuming you're thinking, oh, awesome. Like this is a, a, a queer friendly church. And, yeah. and, and then Danny expressing this fear, what, what happened? Where did that come from? Was the church sending mixed messages? What, yes. what, what was going on there? <laughs> there were mixed messages. And I think, um, there was a lot of don't ask, don't tell going on, um, in the relationship with Danny and his partner at that time. And I just, my sensibilities were, oh, this has to be because I've been to their house and I they, they share a car and they share vacations. And, you know, I just uh, all the signs were there. And but they weren't super, you know, publicly saying, oh, this is our our situation. There was a lot of implied. Uh... And I think there were some other people that and this was a church that people came in and out of a lot too and so sometimes there would be other people that would come in and and would um maybe even admit to being gay um and everybody nobody really got too alarmed or excited about it so i'm just assuming from these context clues that i I don't think this is an issue that is um is a big deal here and i knew the pastor pretty well and we had talked about it and i knew the pastor personally was fine. Um, yeah, the LGBTQ, um, people, um, cause we didn't know I then, <laughs> uh, we didn't know about intersex. Um, you know, they're, they're welcome here. They're welcome here. And they didn't have any weird. Th- one thing I did love about this church is there wasn't that weird statement of faith that you often get about what, what the good things are and what the bad things are. You didn't have that. So I'm like, okay. I mean, I think, I think we're, I think we're safe here hmm. was, was my thought at the time. But then that, did that change at some point? Mm, it it changed weirdly. 
and slowly. Because in the beginning, Danny was able to tell the church community about what was happening. Um, he was able to um, kind of um, almost instruct them about what intersex meant. And um, he did it first, you know, kind of uh, privately with people that he was closer to. And then he did it in a little meeting with church leadership. And then he told the entire congregation and everyone seemed pretty supportive. Um, when you told the whole con congregation, there were hugs and uh, people asking sincere questions. And it seemed to be a positive experience. Mm -hmm. And that's what Danny needed at that moment. And I think that if if there had been any pushback, then it would have been pretty devastating to him. But in the beginning, it was pretty welcoming. Um, but in my mind, what seemed to shift things was when Danny, um, Danny was not in a very healthy relationship with his partner, and actually part of his decision to live life as himself was that he didn't want to be in this relationship anymore because there were some very unhealthy elements to it. Mm. So when he was deciding that, that that was what was, you know, needing to happen. And then later on when he decided that he um, was going to, to date, that's when people were really judgmental. Hmm. It was, it was almost like you can be intersex, but you better not, <laughs> you better not, um, you know, get, get into a, a leave. First of all, leave the relationship that you're in. And then second of all, you better not start dating other people because we're not comfortable with that. The Chapel Probation Podcast takes a critical look at evangelical colleges and universities, focusing initially on Azusa Pacific University, where I taught English for 15 years. I'm Scott Okamoto, and I'm writing a book about how I deconstructed from faith completely while at APU. This podcast, though, is my tribute to the students and other faculty who survived evangelical higher education. They faced ridiculous racism, sexism, anti-LGBTQ hatred, and all manner of bigotry. From the heartless evils of the prosperity gospel to the destructive pseudo-theology of purity culture, the stories will break your heart, but they will also inspire. These people faced bigotry and fought back. In a weird, kind of sick way, we went through some sh**, but we formed identities and we formed communities through it all. I hope you will join us. Hey everyone, I hope you're enjoying this episode. I want to take a quick break from the conversation to let you know that we have a fantastic new way for you to support the podcast. If you like what you hear from our show and want to partner with us, head over to patreon.com slash fullmutuality to donate. As a partner, you'll get exclusive content, access to occasional live recording events, and more for as little as $5 a month. Thank you already for your support of what we're creating. And now, back to the conversation. That must have been a shocker. I think there's often a trepidation a lot of people have about progressive churches because it seems like sometimes especially and maybe not for I don't know maybe it's different with mainline I'm part of a mainline uh, coming out of evangelicalism but I didn't grow up in it so I have like less knowledge but I think for churches where they came out of evangelicalism and are trying to create something healthy and want to make a new ex 
like, you know, inviting church that resembles some of their evangelical mm-hmm. background, but maybe takes out what they think is the harmful elements of it. Some of those those progressive churches end up being scary places for people because the lines are not very well established of what is okay and what's not okay. And assumptions get made like that, like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, this is an affirming place and I can, I'm being accepted as being intersex here. And then boom, some for some vague reason, it's not. Or like there's some hang up over something that just, yeah, that that must be, um, yeah. I don't know. I, I just feel like there's, I get why there's skepticism and there's a lot of whiplash involved in that kind of a mm-hmm. thing. That's a really interesting point because as much as I don't like those um, statements of faith and, you know, this, this church believes this and this church believes that, in a more progressive environment, there's a, and especially one without like a national like denomination. This was a very independent operation here. So there's no governing body. It's just a bunch of people trying to figure something out. Mm. And um, it can get confusing. You don't know from one day to the next what the rules are or what the expectations are or, or what um, how you're going to run yeah. afoul. I, I do find it interesting um, how there is this sort of and and um i guess kind of going uh, going back a little bit um we in one of our earliest episodes um of the podcast we had a friend of mine um on who went through um a pretty harrowing experience with his boyfriend um that when they were kind of discovering i guess um if I remember correctly, his boyfriend was um, beginning to kind of discover his own um, sexuality and and come into his own, and mm-hmm. um, the the church, um, which happened to be a church that I worked for for a number of years, um, and it wasn't in any way, shape, or form a progressive church. It was a very staunchly um, reformed Calvinist um, mega church. In the yeah. in the vein of like the Acts twenty nine network and whatnot, okay. um, and but they had no policies in place for for what they would do or how they would handle any um, you know sexual minority or um, uh, gender non conforming people if they were to ever attend the church. So the way that the entire situation went down was pretty horrific that on 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 one side where you have these um conservative churches but even progressive churches like like you were talking about if if there's no clarity of um of policy if there isn't a sense that like given x y and z circumstance we will do you know a b and c um for instance mm-hmm. uh, there's this organization called church clarity uh, and they provide uh, something of a database for churches, and they have very simple yes or no questions that they ask a church. Um, and churches often don't respond to them, so they have a, a, a team of volunteers that digs through sermons and, and the website and, and doctrinal statements if they're all available, um, and then kind of you know cross references and checks you know right. based on what we're hearing from these sermons or whatever. This church um, is unclear, non-affirming, etc. But they ask very specific questions of the churches who do respond, uh, yes or no questions. So, for instance, will you hire um, an LGBTQ person 
um, to be on staff? Will you ordain LGBTQ people as clergy? Will you perform a same-sex wedding? Yes or no. It's all yes or no questions, and it has nothing to do with beliefs. It's all about actively enforced policies, because regardless of what I think a pastor may believe, if there are no policies on the books, then that ambiguity just leaves room for all sorts of abuses. And um, and and look, the, the other thing, too, is, you know, especially in these more progressive circles, those abuses are often unintended. They're just right. the natural consequences of not having policies that you can turn to and say, hey, in this circumstance, we're going to do X, Y, and Z because it's in writing. Yes. Rather than flying by the seat of the pan, seat of your pants or trying to figure it out as you go. Because uh, I think we're now at the point um, in society where we sort of, we, we know what's around us. And I, churches are running to catch up, but they're doing a pretty piss poor job of it um, oh, yeah. by and large. So yeah. Anyway, that was that was my my little rant <laughs> about no, about that circumstance because it, it's it's awful what what happened there. It is, and I think too that's exactly what was happening. It was just a bunch of average people flying by the seat of their pants, trying to figure out a confusing situation. And I and I think that the pastor was very much trying to appease everyone, um, to appease Danny, to make Danny mm. feel comfortable, but make everybody else feel comfortable too. And there were, it, and because that it was sort of this open, like everyone's welcome, you would weirdly have conservative people and people who were not at all conservative in the same space trying to make sense of things. And there's no way at some point that you're going to please everybody. And, and if you right. don't have, you know, hey, at the, at the end of the day, this is going to be an affirming con- congregation or we are going to support this person. And I think, too, that as the support for Danny was causing friction, I think that that then cooled some of the um, motive to continue to support him, like actual donors were leaving the church over mm. the situation. And then that became harder and harder, of course, then to, yes, we're, we're going to continue to be supportive here. Mm. That's fascinating. Like just the idea that, you know, you could, when you're trying to make everyone feel comfortable, it's uh it's an impossible situation because somebody is going to, if you're actually standing for anything. <laughs> so it's, right. you know, people who are uh, LGBTQIA, anywhere in the queer spectrum going to feel comfortable or welcome, or people that have problems with it are going to feel uncomfortable or comfortable with their stance. Like there, it's impossible to have two opposing, you know, places and have both like, I mean, I've heard this kind of nonsense out there. I'm trying to think if, if it was I don't even want to misquote who it was, but somebody who was in one of those white progressive males was saying something like, in my church, you know, uh, immigrants and ice workers, you know, are sitting in the pews with each other and both feel comfortable. And I'm like, no, that's actually well, not possible. <laughs> you, you're really, <laughs> you're imagining something, but uh, I have yes. a pretty strong feeling that immigrants are not comfortable next to the ice people. <laughs> like, that's not how any of that works. But I think people no. would like to imagine that they could, you know, play every side of, of the fence and that that works. Um, but at the end of the day, somebody's go- somebody is yes. going to be uncomfortable when what? you take it. We a, want this utopia. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. It sounds like a nice ideal. Right. It's it's a great ideal, but you can't ever get there until the regressive element 
is cleaned up and educated and faces what they are doing and what they have done and and make reparations for it i mean like you know we would i would love to live in in a country where we could just you know imagine that there's no skin color and you know i the the whole ideal of i don't see color i would love to live in that country but we can't get there because there are things that have happened in this country that no one has ever made reparations for and no one has ever fessed up to and the the vestiges of those policies that were put in place centuries ago are still reverberating through our laws today they those policies still exist in one way shape or form mm. and 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 we're not doing anything about it so we can't have that utopia we can't have that world that people seem to want so much to just skip through the hard parts i mean look even even germany for example um they're still struggling um, and they could probably be seen as uh, as an example, perhaps for many other countries around the world, of facing their crimes against humanity mm-hmm. and, you know, um, putting into place a Truth and Reconciliation Commission that then moves people forward and educates the population. But they're still struggling as well. So the fact that we in the U.S. haven't even taken a look at what we did. I mean, we can't even get to that point of of what Germany looks like now. Right, um, right. So, again, sorry, I went, <laughs> I went on another rant. No, <laughs> no I get yeah, it. I, I, was, <laughs> I was in Germany a few years ago, and I saw that, you know. It, it's. I think these are nice ideas that we could all be unified and that we can all... Um, come from diverse walks of life and worship together in the same building and worship the same creator. And I, I too wish that were true. And I wish it worked out that way. And I wish that, that we could get there, but a lot of people want to skip over a lot of, of hardship and pain mm. in, in the process. And sometimes that hardship is, is it's going to cost you like your donors, right? <laughs> like if you have some, and I find a lot of places have, you know, have some money behind them that are very white, conservative, rich boomer mills, and they run the show. And in so many organizations and places, like you have a lot of young people that are being recruited to take on roles, um, and they do not know. And and the organization itself that's trying to recruit them is not promoting or telling you exactly who where the money's coming from and what the unofficial policies are because they don't want to scare away, them away from wanting to be a part of it. But at the end of the day. Right. Like you can't just take that money from people who are going to be um, phobic of others or hateful or racist or anything and then just try and appease them at the same time. Like you have to make a decision on what do you actually stand for? And if you're trying to just make it work for everyone, then it's like in Danny's situation, it really um, backfired. How did that whole scenario um, – I know your book speaks about how it backfired on you, you know, being an ally in terms of losing that, uh, that job opportunity. Um, did it end up affecting you or was it at the same time or is it even in the book about as well as how your community, how Danny's story intersected with your faith at that point in time in your church, watching how they handled things and 
um, yeah. how that played out for you as well. Is that in the book or? Is yeah, that- I think it is. It is in the book there. Um, it's in three parts where first part is Danny's story. Like as Nate was saying, you know, just kind of him coming up to the, you know, through his life up to the point where he decides I can't go on like this. And then we kind of get my story and how I grew up in these evangelical communities. And then I'm, you know, a youth minister and all these things. And then we get to the intersection where basically Danny and I are now at this point together where our church isn't working for us anymore. We, our friendship's still really strong. And Danny, um, at this point, cause it, we cover a, a couple of years in time. Danny has, um, it, it ends with him, um, a little bit of a spoiler alert it ends in a wedding. Um, so we've got, um, we've got Danny and his, his wife and my husband and myself, we're very good friends and we're kind of as a unit shoved out of our church, um, bit by bit. And then what next, where do we go? What, what does life look like when you're not in this church community? I'm a big community person. I like to have um, my safe, secure community of people that I know I can count on. And then suddenly that's vaporizing. And I really had to rethink and rebuild. First of all, what do I believe? Because at the same time, um, the world was sort of politically and in every other way, just sort of falling apart where I'm seeing that all of the Christian leaders and Christian institutions that I had learned from growing up and people I had respected were doing things and saying things and supporting things that I could no longer get behind. And I had, I had just realized I had to scrap everything and start over like scorched earth and decide to uh, kind of see what grows up again, you know, come, comes up from the scorched earth and realize that I don't know for sure in fact, I don't know a lot of things. There's a lot I just don't know. And I had to get really comfortable with that mm. and not abandon the thought of Christianity or abandon the thought of, of, of God, but kind of be open to what that looks like and how it might be a lot mm. different yeah. than what I've been taught my whole life. Yeah. Yep. I feel like a lot of people <laughs> can relate to that. Yeah. Because um, we kind we, we are sort of wired. Yeah, those are my people now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> This is a community right now. A lot of podcasts are jumping in to try and and help people to see you're you're not by yourself right now. There's so many of us that are Mm -hmm. saying, what was this bill of goods we grew up with? We're told that this was about this, that these were the values that, (laughs) you know, these were the organ, like the focus on the families and the, you know, here are all the family values. And then you just see something completely see the rise of Trump or the rise of just... You know, the yes. insurrection that just that happened that they're they're doing the proceedings yeah. and you know, and the committee to to and you're just like, this is the world that we're in what COVID did to mm-hmm. churches with churches ignoring it and politicizing it and not caring. Like it really has been a period of, I don't know, I feel like just so much has been so much has been happening so in a very much. small period of time. <laughs> so I was wondering where did your story take place in the middle of Trump's election, COVID, all of that? Where where does this happen with the school? Is it all before this all goes down, or is this during, or how how did those interplay together? They definitely interplayed. Um, the the action, if you will, started before 2016, but by the time 2016 hit. I was deeply embroiled in some of the consequences because there were consequences of 
um, not taking the tenure track job and then trying to um, just continue on, you know, cobbling things together as an adjunct where some of the work started to dry up. And there's, there's a point in my life where I still don't have my MFA. I no longer know how I'm going to completely pay for my MFA. And I am just trying to scrap together any sort of teaching gig I can just to make it through my program. And I'm tired and I'm cranky and it very starting to get depressed. And then this is the rise of Trump, right? About at this point, we get enter the uh, the political scene. And I start seeing church leaders. Um, I was really, uh, disclaimer, I was late to the game to understand that Christians like Trump because I was at this more progressive church that um, wasn't necessarily promoting him um, or talking a lot about that. But I don't know what I really thought. Did I think that the Christians were voting for Hillary? At the end of the day, probably not. But I didn't know that they loved Trump. So I was late to that. But I clearly remember one night seeing, um, I think it was October 2016, and seeing that there was going to be this essentially a Trump rally. But it was, I think it was Kirk Cameron was oh, calling boy. all of the Christians to come together to pray about the election. And I called my husband. I said, oh my goodness, Brad, come look at this. I think the Christians are, are into Trump and I don't know. <laughs> my world was rocked. And um, and then from that point on, just seeing, right, seeing the Christian community completely buy this hook, line, and sinker mm. and seeing all of, like I was saying, the organizations, the people, the churches fall into this. And knowing I can't go there, I don't support this. And now I don't really have any, you know, much in the way of respected church leaders or people I can look to or all the people that I learned from in my life were now doing things that I found pretty reprehensible. And that all contributed to this, you know, scorched earth, you know, thing. I don't have my my school. I don't have my church. I don't really know what's going on in the greater Christian community anymore. So I think it was all very much, um, uh, it was all just coming to a head. And you, and you start to feel um, pretty isolated at that point, right? Like, mm. um, yeah. I, I remember when all of that was going down, I was at a church that, when it, when it came to those kinds of things, had a very uh, don't ask, don't tell sort of attitude mm -hmm. um but that's sort of a common thread with evangelical yeah. churches yeah, really on is. almost every topic that's <laughs> yeah. controversial mm -hmm. yeah um and i remember distinctly feeling like you know i'm looking around the room and i'm in my like i ha had become uh much more vocally um left wing uh, at that point and mm -hmm. i remember looking around the room and it dawned on me like there are probably quite a few people in this room who voted for Trump. And I don't know that I feel safe in, in this environment anymore. Yeah. Um, and that was one of the, one of the first moments where, I mean, there were, there were a whole other, uh, there was a whole plethora of reasons why I had to walk away from, uh, from that church. Uh, the least of which being the, the, um, the political climate though, that was kind of a motivator and it did kind of, it popped into my mind and, and, and served as one of the impeti, I guess, uh, for, for me Good word. walking <laughs> away. But I, I do remember this sort of 
isolating feeling. Oh, thanks. <laughs> this mm-hmm. isolating feeling of, uh, and and it was so stark. It suddenly hit me, and it was, it was after the election, after the inauguration. Um, it was a few months after the inauguration, and it 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 hit me one Sunday, and I'm like, I looked around at people, and I'm like, oh no, <laughs> I I yeah, I don't feel safe here. yeah it's interesting how like that situation was i mean there's there's been a few unveilings covid and being again like we said another one of them but like i feel like that was one of those that sort of pulled back the curtain for people who didn't realize like you said uh cynthia that for you that that wasn't obvious to you or was a surprise seeing kirk hamlin i think for i felt similar as a canadian because Canadians, uh, Canadian evangelicals, I mean, we watch the Kirk Cameron movies. We get all of our uh, – the Americans run the show when it comes to white evangelicalism. Like the Canadian evangelicalism yeah. is just importing it. It's just like it's getting pumped into. And I grew up in white evangelicalism up in Canada. That's where I live. And um, I I was completely stunned. Not that I was stunned for sure that Trump got elected, but I think I was more stunned – when I saw the statistic that 81% of white evangelicals in the States voted for Trump, that was where I was yes. like, no, that yes. my, my group, the ones that trained us, taught us, gave us all this, these tools and said, this is what we believe. And they're the main support group behind this clown. Like I just did not like it was, it was <laughs> no. one of the, and I think it already started, it started, yeah, started my own deconstruction process, um, probably right close to that actually. And I may, wouldn't have called it that at that time or want to put that label on it, but it was one of those things that was, right in my face that I couldn't really avoid as I was questioning the things I was taught to see where are the leaders of this movement? Who do they follow and what do they actually believe? Not what they say they believe, but what are they willing to compromise? And to like, they were always telling us not to compromise growing. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. You know, grow up in youth group. Nope. I was I youth leader exactly too. Like you, you're, about. you know, you're always, you're talking about like the importance of staying true to your convictions and not compromising and giving up for Jesus and sacrificing. And then all of a sudden the curtain gets pulled back and you're like, Oh wow. Like they're willing to throw everything away to have a leader who backs up some of what they think and who can give them political power. And, it was just, and it doesn't matter how much compromise is going into it. It's it's fine, and it was just yeah. like whoa, um, stunning. Yeah. It was stunning, yeah. Because you know, personally, like you're saying, like I was starting to have all of these very concerning questions because you know I had spent like maybe eighteen months at this point, you know, going through the everything went through with the university and with Danny and seeing things begin to unravel, and then to see this play out on the national stage. It just, it, I cried. I just, I cried mm. the day after the election. I know I'm not alone in that. I know I was, you know, very much not that unique story, but I was crying because to me, that was, it, it made everything real. It made everything like, I really am going through something that's going, it, I'm not going to be the same after after wherever I land, it's not going to be the same place. And I knew it then. Yeah. I think too, possibly, and I'm thinking of the pain you were going through as you realized, like, this isn't going to, going to be the same anymore. But do you also find that there was a piece of you that as you were going through your church experience and the situation with Danny in the university, that there was a little piece of you before the Trump election that was like, well, 
one bad actor here, one bad college there, mm-hmm. one, you know, this is just yeah. not done properly here <laughs> or there. But like, it's yes. not the whole entire thing. It's it's not the whole system. It's just the bad actor here or there. Like, was this one of those moments where it was like, oh, now you have to piece together how these things interplay and what, what that looks yes. like? Yes, <laughs> very much so. Very much so. Yeah, it was like, it went from being like personal crisis to, you know, like, I, I think I've I've run into, you know, some bad, bad circumstances to... I think the whole entire system is coming unglued and mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know what that is going to look like mm. for any of us anymore. And and it's frightening in the beginning, but I, I want to ask what has that been like for you? I mean, now we're a few, you know, we're uh, six, six years removed from Trump's election. I mean, since he got kicked out of office way less than that, but from that election right, day, right. Uh, <laughs> you know, a lot has gone on and changed. I'm sure in your life too. Yeah. What has it been like, living more authentically, I guess, having to stand by yeah. what you believe, having to flesh those things out. What does, what does this, this chapter look like in your life? If you're going to, so we think of the wilderness and the whole like shock of everything mm-hmm. kind of falling apart. Um, some people are in that spot uh, maybe right now. And, you know, maybe just feeling, I was talking with Nate over my lunch break and I was like, ah, I feel like uh, there was a big long wilderness period for me where I felt like a refugee. I felt like a, like a fugitive. I didn't fit into any specific Christian culture stuff that I grew up with. It just, none of it right. seemed to fit. How are you finding it? How, what does that space look like for you now, as opposed to, you know, back then, how does that feel for you? Well, it yeah, like? it feels freeing. I remember um, early on my therapist telling me, well, you know, it's kind of like scorched earth, but from scorched earth, you start to see shoots of life pop up. And I was waiting for a while to start to see shoots coming up. And then And then I did. And the really amazing thing to me is I look at my life now and I have more friends than I ever did. And they're more, the relationships are more genuine because I think what I was able to, um, what I've come to the conclusion of is a lot of the relationships that are based in church communities, um, you hear about, oh, they're our church family. And these, you know, these are our people that we do life together in these church communities. And that sounds great. But if one person like, you know, there's a week you go back to church and this family's gone and you never see them again. And, and they're just, they're out of the family. You know, they, they crossed the line. Some unforgivable sin has taken place and I would see people just disappear. Mm. And so that seemed very conditional to me, mm. very conditional. And now I can approach my friendships from this place of, oh, I don't have to wonder, you know, how are they going to react if they know I believe this or think this or have questions around that? I, it's not like a, uh, we're going to kick you out of the the community thing. It's, it's, oh, okay. Yeah. I have questions around those things too. Let's, you know, we can talk about it. So it's very authentic in that I don't have to present here. I am completely in line with your doctrinal statement or your, whatever statement that you've put out, you know, that's, that governs this, uh, this, this church family, right. I can just, um, meet people and talk about, well, I I have a lot of questions around these things. I feel really strongly about these other things. I'm not so sure about this. I've got a lot of questions and that seems to foster just more authenticity from other people because then they're able to feel safe saying, I don't know how I feel about this, or I don't know what I think about that. And then you start to realize that there are people all around you that love and support you, 
no matter what your actual official position on a bunch of random things is. And that is very, very freeing. Mm. That's amazing. And you mentioned unconditional love. I think, you know, when you talked about how we're family and then you see people disappearing and you're like, wait, this is what we're told. This is our spiritual family. It doesn't, it's not, it's not actually upholding to what we're being told about it. And then you get into unconditional love, which I mean is something the church is very big on talking about, but <laughs> that it's just so unreal. Like you, you get out of the system and it's like, wait, I'm actually discovering, I know for myself, unconditional love for the first time. What is it like to love a friend without worrying that, you know, um, I don't know if you remember the term uh, from ev- inside evangelicalism because you hail from it too, but friendship evangelism. I don't know if you ever heard that terminology, oh, yes. but it's so it's it's just yes. so telling, and it's it's like just <laughs> it sort of stays straight up front. We have an agenda on being your friend, you know, yep. the, and it's yes. interesting because so much stuff ends up very projectiony. Like you know, you hear about the liberal agenda, the woke agenda, the gay agenda. Everyone supposedly has an agenda, and you're like, well, what are they talking about? What are they? I mean, I don't know any gay people sitting around trying to plot to make people gay. They're just trying to figure out how to keep never keep people it. safe. And like, there's all these projections about an agenda. And I was thinking about it, and I was like, wait a second. We had the agenda as evangelicals. We were the ones who had to be friends in order to win people to Jesus. And I just find it beautiful to know what real unconditional love is where I don't feel that pressure in any friendships that I have to be a good friend in order to shine the light of Jesus so that someone's going to come to know the eternal love of God. Like that my friendship is all about saving them out of hell and that's – and you know – I've heard people say, yeah, but you don't need to make that the main thing. If it's true, you need to make it the main, like, the, of course, if this is like, you know, heaven or hell is, is the, is the, the backdrop, then how do you ignore something like that without living in constant cognitive dissonance, without constantly having to shut off and close off pieces of who you are? So like just that whole concept of unconditional love, as much as I thought I had the source of that, I had never actually experienced that until coming out what you talked about, that freedom, that was what was popping in my head was like, yeah, those rich relationships where you can just literally love without that agenda anymore, with, without, you know, yeah. without having to, to agree to any statement. I know. And I, yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about because I was always told that your real friends are your friends from church. Those are the people you get real with and do life with. Mm. And the people outside of church, the um, heathen unsaved people, they were your mission field and you only hung out with them. Like Gail saying, like within the context of I'm trying to win them over. And that is, it's terrible. It's awful because Mm -hmm. you're really not, it's not a real friendship, right? Right. Neither. Neither of those are real friendships. And you're telling yourself it's sincere. (laughs) Because you're sincerely worried that they're going to go to hell and it's going to be your fault. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. You don't tell yourself is the actual base of your relationship, but it's hard to form an authentic relationship off of fear. Yeah. Trying to save someone. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Cynthia, I feel like we could go on forever. <laughs> I know, um, this is great. I, uh, we have a, another... <laughs> You're my people. <laughs> we, we have another another friend who um, who likes to refer uh, to, to like-minded people as, as kindred spirits. And, and I feel like this was something of that, a meeting of the minds. Um, despite yeah. the fact that you use an iPhone, I think we can forgive that. <laughs> and um, we are... We are kindred spirits um and, and and i'm grateful for this conversation this was um 
refreshing. And it was great to hear from you and uh, to hear you share uh, your experience with with Danny's story. Um, the book is called Intersection, but it's not spelled the the usual way. So we'll put all of that info in. In fact, I'll just make the title of this of this episode intersection so that people can see how it's spelled. They can go look for the book, but I'll put the link to the book in the show notes so people can go ahead and buy it. It is out now on all of the retailers, though I would recommend using bookshock.org or IndieBound to, to purchase it. So we'll go ahead and throw links into the show notes. Um, I have and Cynth- one, one last question for Cynthia before we wrap up. Oh, okay. And it actually has to do with right. your book because you threw out, the, okay. threw out the link. What are the things that you hope your book clearly communicates to the people that are reading it? What are the, what do you want? Mm. What do you hope people can walk away with? I like to think that this book is for anyone who is curious about living an authentic life to, to be true to their, their truest selves and to learn how to approach others from this place of authenticity and build a community around authentic relationships. I think above and beyond all else, I think that is what I hope people walk away with. Mm. That's awesome. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Cynthia. Um, Once again, the book is called Intersection, and um, you can purchase it uh, through the links in the show notes. And uh, Cynthia, where can people find you online, um, on on the interweb socials? Uh, Is there any, are there any links that you want to, uh, that you want to share with us? Yes. So I have a website at CynthiaVacaDavis.com. And the cool thing is I've, I've got somebody, I'm not as tech savvy as I want to be. I tried making my own website and that's what's, you know, I, but I've got a, I've got a guy on it now (laughs) and he's got all my links to all my socials. So if you just go to my website, you can just link to all of my socials from there. Awesome. So we'll also put that link in the show notes as well. Um, for those of you who do check the show notes, um, please do that because you, then you can find Cynthia that way. Um, thank you again, Cynthia, for joining us. This um, has been a blast. And I do hope people will go ahead and check out the book one last time. The book is called Intersection by Cynthia Vaca Davis. And uh, I guess we'll see you around soon. That wraps up another episode of the Full Mutuality Podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. And if you don't already have one, head over to our website, fullmutuality.com, for a list of all the apps you can find us on. We couldn't do this without you, our listeners. So thank you so much for your continued support. Speaking of support, one of the best things you can do for us is to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. I'm pretty sure five-star reviews get you an extra crown in heaven. Look, seriously, if you found this episode insightful, spread the word and share it with your friends. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Full Mutuality. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Full Mutuality Podcast.